listeners, welcome to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, Episode 3. Now with a run officially longer than Brother Power the Geek. I'm Mike Voiles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. My podcast was created to bring you, the listener, information about the history of DC comic stories, starting at the very beginning. I'm currently covering those stories which were created years before Superman burst onto the scene. Most of this material is extremely rare and has never been reprinted. Fortunately for you, I have access to all these stories and can fill you in on the details. There's no need for you to go out and hunt down these books that would cost tens of thousands of dollars. I've got you covered. Most of these early DC issues featured long-running serials with stories told in short installments over many issues. If I was to read one issue at a time, I would only get a small portion of more than a dozen stories. Instead of covering the stories issue by issue, I'll be following along with each feature over the several issues in which it was published. In doing so, an entire storyline can be covered in a single episode all at once. Along the way, I'll be filling you in on details concerning DC the company, or National Allied as it was first known. DC's first title was called New Fun, and it was published beginning in 1935. After six issues, the series was retitled More Fun. Eventually, it became More Fun Comics and ran a total of 127 issues. It ceased publication in 1947. In my first two episodes, I covered two of the early serials that began in the first issue of New Fun, Jack Woods and Sondra of the Secret Service. I'll be covering another serial later in this episode, but not everything in these early comics was serial in nature. Many of these strips were humorous gags or simply not intended to be a continuing story. Additionally, most issues contained non-comics related material. Text stories, activities, puzzles, articles about hobbies, and more. In each of the next few episodes, I'll be covering some of these non-serialized features and strips that appeared in New Fun and More Fun. All six issues of New Fun and seven, issues seven and eight of More Fun were published in tabloid size, about 10 by 15. The larger size allowed for more panels per page than the later, more traditional comic-sized comics. The standard Golden Age-sized comic was first used with More Fun number nine. As a result, a comic page in the early issues usually had five rows of panels plus a header containing the title of the strip and that compares to about three rows of panels you get in a modern comic. Often one of these five rows of panels was used for a different strip unrelated to the main feature that appeared on the same page. Keep in mind that for issues one through eight no feature was longer than a single page. Often a single row of panels was used as a cartoon strip or a gag. Uh, other times it would be used to illustrate a, a factual piece such as the famous people in South America which I mentioned in my first episode of this podcast. In New Fun number one, pages one through six featured a cartoon strip in the bottom row of panels. This strip told a story that continued from page to page. It, it is a widely held opinion that this strip is the reason that DC has never reprinted New Fun number one. The strip features a character named Oswald the Rabbit. 
Oswald was created in 1927 by Walt Disney himself in combination with Universal Studios. At that time, the character was Disney's biggest success. Now, obviously, less than a year later, Disney would leave that character behind and start a new project, the most famous cartoon of all, Mickey Mouse. Oswald remained with Universal after Disney's departure and appeared in nearly 200 cartoons over the next two decades. Many of these cartoons were produced by Walter Lance of Woody Woodpecker fame. Oswald's final cartoon appearance was in 1951 in a Woody Woodpecker cartoon. Oswald's appearance in New Fun features a note which reads, by arrangement with Universal Pictures. So this was the first licensed property to appear in a DC comic. Universal's ownership of Oswald over the years was likely a barrier that prevented DC from reprinting New Fun number one in its entirety. When DC published a slew of Millennium editions back in the year 2000, they chose many of their historically significant books. New Fun number one didn't make that list. Though I don't believe that Oswald's appearance was ever officially confirmed by DC as the reason for its omission from these reprints, but it seems a strong possibility. The other possible reasons for choosing not to reprint it include the oversized dimension of the book, keep in mind it was 10 by 15 rather than a standard comic size, but DC has reprinted treasure editions at regular size in the past, so that may not be a, a real excuse. It could also be a simple lack of source material. I know that DC doesn't have all of its older material in their archives anymore, but they have been borrowing comics from other collectors when they want to reprint something that they don't actually have. Finally, another the, the reason I can think of that it might be the DC's powers that be decided there wouldn't be enough interest in the material itself. Obviously, this material is stuff that hasn't been seen in a long time and doesn't feature any characters that most people have ever even heard of. So, at least for modern readers, the material itself may not have had enough appeal for DC to choose to reprint it. All that being said, I still think Oswald's appearance is a factor, even if it's not the only one, against DC reprinting their first comic. The fact that Disney reacquired ownership of the character from Universal just a few years ago makes the likelihood of a full reprint of New Fun Number 1 even more unlikely. Would like to see it someday, but I'm not holding my breath. The Oswald strip in New Fun Number 1 shows the cartoon rabbit going ice skating. Oswald did not speak at this time. He was not given a voice in the cartoons until a few years later. Therefore, his strip has no dialogue. However, text does appear atop each three-panel per page strip Say that three times fast. The first reads, Mmm, slippery ice, as Oswald falls on his skates. On the second page, Oswald has regained his feet and is skating well. He seems confident but slips again. The text reads, Oh, oops! On page three, the text reads, Watch some trick stuff. Blam! The strip shows the rabbit doing a face plan on the ice. Page four, Whew. Figure eights. Backward and again, another fall. Page 5 reads, Gosh, what's happening now? As Oswald reaches a roped off section of the outdoor skating rink with a sign marked Danger. On the sixth and final page, we see Oswald dismantle the sign and turn it into a sled. 
He then ties each end of his scarf around each of his long ears, and he sits on the sled, and the wind catches the scarf like a sail. The wind then pushes him across the ice. The text reads, Ah, an idea, and it works! More Oswald adventures appeared in New Fun number 2 through 6, and his last appearance, at least at National, was in More Fun number 7. The license for Oswald's comic adventures was picked up by Dell Comics a few years later. In those Dell Comics, his, his physical appearance looked quite a bit different than he does in these New Fun adventures. The character's black fur was changed to white, and he was drawn differently, at least in a different style. The changes were consistent with the cartoon itself. The version of Oswald that appears in New Fun is consistent with his old look. Oswald's strip in New Fun number 1 through 3 were not credited. Uh, issues 4 and 5 include a byline that reads simply, John. But number 4 tells us who the artist really was. It's signed Lindy, meaning it was drawn by John Lindermayer. Issues 1 through 3 were probably also drawn by Lindermayer. Oswald's appearances in, in New Fun number 6 and More Fun number 7 were both drawn by Al Stahl. Lindemeyer was born in 1915. Uh, he was just 19 at the time. In addition to Oswald, Lindemeyer drew the cartoon strip P. Lion and Ossa, which also appeared in New Fun number 1 through 5. Those were his only credits at National that I can find. He did do some later work for the Chesler Shop and at Quality Comics. His career after 1940, though, remains pretty much a complete mystery to me. Um, I thought he might have been a casualty of World War II, as a lot of uh, young men were, but I did turn up some information that says he did live until 1972. What did he do during and after the war? Honestly, I don't know. I couldn't find any information about him. New Fun number 1 also features the comedy strip Jigger and Ginger. This strip ran in only the first two issues of New Fun. The strip was signed by the artist as Shush. No, this was not Joe Schuster, but the real identity of the artist does appear to be lost with time. I can't find out who this guy is. Jigger is essentially a teen comedy strip similar to Archie, although this does predate Archie by several years. Archie, a.k.a. Jigger, makes a date with Betty, a.k.a. Ginger. Okay, so Archie is a Jigger, is Jigger, and Betty is Ginger, if that makes any sense. Anyway, Reggie, a.k.a. Kip, as he's called in this story, is Jigger's adversary, and he gets Jigger to go to a fraternity initiation instead of on his date with Ginger. Kip's frat brothers drive Jigger into the country and drop him in the middle of nowhere and leave him all alone. That is, of course, until Kip and Ginger drive by on their date. Ginger makes Kip stop to pick up Jigger. Kip is then forced to be the chauffeur while Jigger and Ginger enjoy each other's company in the back seat. No dirty stuff, of course. Next up was Judge Perkins, another humor strip. This one was drawn by Bert Saug, who signed it simply as Bert. Sog was an illustrator for children's books, most written by author Leo Edwards. Sog died in 1938, so this uh, was near the end of his life. Judge Perkins, which appeared in New Fun number 1 and 2, appears to be his only contribution to National. Uh, Perkins is a judge of the, in the fictitious town of Doodleville. 
After giving himself a pep talk in the mirror, the old man sets out for his daily business. And clearly his eyesight must be poor because when he comes upon a bull in the middle of the road while driving, he threatens it. The bull knocks Perkins' car off the road and into a lake. In the lake, a fisherman pulls the judge out, and the story resumes in New Fun Number 2, and the fisherman takes the judge to the home of Tilly Timmons. After the accident, the judge is shaken up and waterlogged, so Tilly dresses him up in one of her nightgowns. She puts him to bed and fusses over him, but perturbed by the treatment but the spinster is giving him, the judge sneaks out the window to escape from her, still wearing the nightgown that she provided. It's possible that the story was meant to continue from here, but it actually only lasted two issues, and I'm not really disappointed that it did. Scrub Hardy by Joe Archibald appeared in New Fun number one and two. Archibald, a World War I vet, worked as a reporter and contributed to comic strips prior to his work at National. In addition to Scrub Hardy, Archibald drew filler art for text features such as the sports page that appeared in early issues of New Fun. In the 1940s and 50s, he worked for Standard Comics. The Scrub Hardy strip featured a Dominion of High School student out to impress the girl Betty and to outdo his rival Cookie Bots. The Scrub reminds me a little of Slam Bradley's partner Shorty Morgan, somewhat in his appearance and his demeanor as well. The story in issue 2 only gets a half page and claims to be continued, but no follow-up was ever printed. Another strip called Brad Hardy, not Scrub, began in New Fun number 3. It was a straight-up action feature. Despite the title characters sharing the same last name, Brad and Scrub Hardy are otherwise unrelated. Bubby and Beevil, not Beezle as claimed in Jerry Bale's Who's Who, was a strip created by art editor Dick Letterer. It ran in New Fun number 1, 2, and 3. The Austrian-born letterer also contributed to Brad Hardy, Caveman Capers, and Midshipman Dewey at National. The character Bubby bears a striking resemblance to Fun the Fantastic, who I introduced in New Fun number 1. New, uh, Fun the Fantastic was the New Fun mascot, and it was also drawn by letterer. Additionally, both characters are nearly identical to characters that appeared in the 1935 cartoon, The Sunshine Makers. I'll post a link to the cartoon, that, which can be found on YouTube in the show notes, so you can go check it out. Could this be the first DC character to make it into another media? The visual evidence is right there, right down to the shape of the character's shoes. I had to do some research on this one to find out a bit more, since I wasn't familiar with this cartoon. What I discovered was that the cartoon was released in theaters in April 1935, three months after New Fun Number 1 hit the stands. However, it was actually produced by Ted Eshbaugh in 1933 for the Borden Company. So in this case, it does look like the comic strip was based on the cartoon rather than the other way around. Letterer may, may have been involved in the cartoon itself, but I can't find any evidence of that, so I don't know if this was just a straight uh, swipe or if he was authorized to use these characters. Here's a description of B&B &B as it appeared in the first issue. Meet happy-go-lucky Bubby with his clattering wooden shoes and big pointed cap, the friend of all good people, always ready to help the needy. 
he is like most unselfish people, modest, and makes himself unseen to anybody. I, I guess unselfish people, like, don't want to be seen? I don't know. Anyway, he is close, he is followed closely by Beevil, the mischievous gloomy bogey who always tries his best to throw a monkey wrench into good old Bubby's doings. Now that Sunshine Makers cartoon also has Beevil in it, but which one is Bubby and which one is Beevil? In this strip, there's they're single characters. In the Sunshine Maker cartoons, there's a whole bunch of each character that look the same. So maybe these are just two instances of those Sunshine Gnomes or whatever they're called. Anyway, in New Fun Number 1, Bubby tries to do a good deed by doing the homework of a young boy while that boy is sleeping. Beevil sabotages him by dumping ink on the boy's schoolwork. The story claims to be continued, but no, New Fun Number 2 is a brand new story. It doesn't continue from the story from New Fun Number 1, so I guess we're just left to think the boy's homework got, uh, got ruined. The story in New Fun Number 2 features an owl sending Bubby and Beevil after a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Once again, the strip says, to be continued at the end. This time, however, we do get a conclusion of sorts. A single row of panels at the bottom of a text page in New Fun Number 3 shows Bubby and Beevil with their pot of gold. They found it. What's the first thing they plan to do with their newfound wealth? Buy a copy of New Fun Number 1, of or New Fun Comics, of course. How's that for product placement advertising? And, you know, a pot of gold these days, it might take that much to buy a copy of New Fun Number 1. Certainly it's not a dime anymore. Anyway, the, the B&B strip uh, in New Fun number 2 shares a page with another letterer strip called Jumpy and Bunny. It was a comedy short about a rabbit and a kangaroo, and as far as I know, the only appearance of that strip. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. For today's show, I'll be discussing DC's first action hero, Barry O'Neill. Of all the features that debuted in New Fun Number 1, Barry holds the distinction for having the longest run. His adventures ran until 1941. Although, as I'll be talking about in a bit, his road to lasting that long was not without some bumps in the road. Lawrence Larrier drew the first two Barry O'Neill strips that appeared in New Fun Number 1 and Number 2. Born on Christmas Day, 1908, Larrier was a freelance cartoonist his drawing style was very cartoonish, which kind of made him an odd choice for an action strip like Barry O'Neill. After his brief stint at National, Larrier worked on syndicated comic strips, including one called Ben Friday. He also worked as an editor at Liberty Magazine and wrote more than a dozen books before he passed away in 1981. Larrier was replaced in New Fun Number 3 by artist Ed Stevenson, a former naval officer who drew mostly jungle stories and westerns for King features. As far as I can tell, his work on Barry O'Neill in New Fun Number 3 was Stevenson's only contribution to National. Barry's adventures, at least the early ones, were almost certainly written by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, although he did not receive credit on the strips themselves. The series begins with Barry meeting the chief of the French secret police, Inspector Legrand. Initially, Legrand's name is spelled with an E at the end, 
but that was soon dropped after the first couple of adventures. We're not given any information on about who Barry is up front or what his background might be. We're just dropped right into the story. The only thing we really know is that Legrand wants his help against the Chinese gang leader Fang Gao. Now Fang Gao is clearly a knockoff of Dr. Fu Manchu, a character popularized in books and movies of this time period. Uh, Fu Manchu was created by author Sax Romer in the 1913 novel The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu. It was originally published in the U.S. as The Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu, and the 1929 movie The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu was the character's first film appearance in the United States. So he'd been appearing in books and movies for more than a couple decades by the time this uh, issue of New Fun was published. Barry and Legrand may actually be analogs for the Fu Manchu opponents Dennis Nayland Smith and Dr. Petrie. What's also interesting here is that DC published an adaptation of Dr. Fu Manchu's adventures beginning in Detective Number 17 uh, from 1938. More on that in a few minutes, though. After Barry is brought onto the case, Fangao hires the assassin named Fu Yak to kill Barry. After missing Barry with a com uh, car bomb, Fu Yak attacks Barry in a hotel room with a knife. Barry survives the ass assassination attempt, calls Inspector Legrand, and follows the would-be killer to the river. A boat chase then begins. Like all strips that appeared in New Fun number 1 and 2, the first two single-page episodes were printed in black and white. From the very beginning, each Barry O'Neill story usually ended with a cliffhanger, with Barry in some kind of deadly situation. This was typical of movie serials at the time, and was done to get viewers to constantly return for the next installment of the saga. The same formula was used here, and to varying effect. Sometimes it works good, sometimes eh, not so much. New Fun number 3 shows Barry and Legrand jumping from their boat, which was set on fire during the boat chase. They are picked up by Fangao's men, uh, who hold them prisoner until a seaplane lands. So, New Fun number 3 was the first episode that was in color, and of course this was drawn by Ed Stevenson, not by the original artist Lawrence Larrier. Stevenson's style was much more realistic than Larrier's, but still not really great. Uh, a lot of line work, and it just didn't really capture the action that was going on in the story all that well. One thing to note here is that uh, Barry has dark, almost black hair um, in the coloring. Uh, later on, it would be established that he is actually a redhead so the color in this issue was not consistent with the rest of his strip. Beginning with New Fun number 4, Barry's adventures were drawn by artist Leo E. Omelia. Leo was an established newspaper strip artist whose work included uh, Sherlock Holmes. Barry and Legrand actually share a bit of the Holmes and Watson dynamic too, where you know Barry would be an analog for Sherlock Holmes. Um, although without the detective skills, much more action-related. So anyway, Leo is Emilio is probably best known at DC as being a cover artist. Uh, he drew Action Comics number two through six, the covers for those issues, and Detective number eighteen through twenty-one. Uh, his story credits include work on the Bob Merritt strip, which ran beginning in New Fun number five. He also drew Andy Handy, a strip from New Comics, 
and he drew the Dr. Fu Manchu story from Detective Comics. Now that Detective Comics Fu Manchu story is actually a reprint of uh, Omelia's previous work. Omelia had already worked on the newspaper Dr. Man, uh, Fu Manchu strip prior to his work at National, and that's what actually is being printed in Detective Comics. Now he was the regular artist on the Fu Manchu knockoff, Barry O'Neill, and after Amelia left National in 1939, he did return to full-time newspaper strip work until his death around 1960. Uh, his illustrated style on Barry O'Neill was much more suited, suitable for an action strip than either of the previous two artists. Uh, he was especially adept at uh, drawing airplanes. Some of his uh, sky battles look really cool. That talent comes really in handy uh, because new fun number four our story picks up and Barry and Legrand uh, overpower the crew of the boat on which they've been uh, captured and begin fighting for control of the seaplane that has landed. They take off in the plane and are chased by air and by sea. Barry shoots down the enemy plane but his, his own plane is damaged forcing him to make a landing in the water to get the engines restarted. Now last episode of my podcast I discussed uh, Sondra of the Secret Service. I mentioned a point in the serial where there was an odd break in which it seemed like there was a missing chapter. Here again in the Barry O'Neill story, a similar break occurs. For the most part, the continuation of the story between issues was pretty seamless in the series, with action picking up right from where it left off in the previous issue, except in between new fun number six and more fun number seven. Number six ends with Barry and Legrand in the plane trying to restart the engine, but number seven picks up with them already caught and bound by Fangao's men. Was there a missing chapter of this story? I believe there was. What became of it is anybody's guess, but if you listen to my last episode, you'll hear some of the possible explanations for what happened to these missing pages. Uh, they were possibly taken by uh, editors Mann and Cook but uh, they never saw print, so they may be out there somewhere. Who knows? Maybe somebody has a, uh, has a page of original art that was never printed, but uh, most of that original art doesn't exist anymore, so we'll probably never know if there even was a missing page, let alone what was on it. So in more fun number seven, Barry and Legrand are taken prisoners to it, and they're taken to a yacht uh, that's anchored at sea, on board, they are led to a small statue through which they hear the voice of Fang Gao. The voice asks them questions, but Barry refused to cooperate. A strange light then emanates from the statue and paralyzes both men. When the light shuts off, they can move again. Barry buys time, stalls by pretending to cooperate with Fang Gao. Uh, he then knocks the statue over and escapes the room via a secret passage. It's worth noting here that Fang Gao himself has not appeared in person at all in this strip. Uh, his voice has been heard directing his men, but the man himself has not been seen. New Fun number 3, 5, and 6 each contain a title bar uh, that appears above the strip, which reads, In far off China sits Fang Gao, the inscrutable and vengeful enemy of the human race. Who is he? What is he? So it can be assumed that Fang Gao is issuing orders to his men from afar. Beginning with more fun number 9, the strip was extended to two pages per issue. The title bar that appeared above the strip, which spanned the side-by-side -side pages, now reads, 
Barry O'Neill and Fang Gao of China. And of course, he goes on to the inscrutable and vengeful enemy of the human race. Who is he? What is he? So this uh, heading lasted until issue 12. Issues 13 through 20 uh, shortened the title. They just uh, read Barry O'Neill and Fang Gao of China. So they got rid of uh, my favorite part. Clearly, these issues uh, were pushing Fang Gao, the villain's importance, uh, much in the way that Dr. Fu Manchu was the headline character in, in those stories. So I think that's why Fang Gao's presence was played up, at least in the title of the strip, even though in person he had not yet appeared. By the way, the episode in Morphin Number 8 was printed in black and white. Uh, so 1, 2, and 8 are black and white. The rest is in color. Back aboard the yacht, Barry and Legrand elude the enemy forces and reach the radio room. Legrand calls the French police for help from there, and then it's off to the bridge. Barry briefly gains possession of the paralysis ray and turns it on some of Fang Gao's men. When the power supply to the device is severed, Barry and Legrand dive overboard and swim to an awaiting seaplane belonging to the French police that Legrand has called. Uh, the adventures return to Paris where Barry examines a map that he stole from the yacht. The map shows locations of bombs planted underneath the city, and Barry and Legrand enter sewer tunnels to look for those bombs. After a fight with an assassin, they come face to face with Fang Gao himself. So it took until Morphin number 12, a year and a half into the story, before the villain is seen in the flesh. And apparently now he's not in far off China, I'm making air quotes with my hands, even though this is a podcast, I find that uh, kind of interesting. Anyway, maybe sometime uh, elapsed after the escape from the yacht and before they go into the sewer tunnels, that gave Fang Gao enough time to uh, make it all the way to Paris from China. Who knows? Uh, I haven't mentioned so far either that Fang Gao and his men are drawn in a style and color that would likely not be acceptable in comics today. They're influenced heav uh, heavily by racial stereotypes of the time period, and, I mean, this is the time they were created in, so that's not really a surprise. I don't really have a problem reading these for what they are. They're products of a different cultural era. Is, is this how people of Asian descent really look and talk? No, of course not. These specific examples, while certainly not politically correct by modern standards, are by no means the worst you're going to find in Golden Age comics. There's much worse out there. So if it offends you that Fang Gao's skin is colored yellow and he talks with the typical Asian dialect, these stories probably not going to be for you because it's pretty heavy in these stories. If you can accept them as artifacts of a different time, so much the better. Alright, end of sermon. Back in the sewers, Barry and Inspector Legrand have, are captured by Fang Gao. The criminal mastermind threatens to torture Legrand unless Barry himself throws the switch to detonate the bombs. Barry stalls until he can make an escape. He and Legrand make a run for it, but fall into a pit trap, which is quickly filling with water. An explosion rings out! Legrand fears that Paris has been destroyed. Instead, only a single bomb went off. It's enough to open a crack in the pit that allows our heroes to escape. Barry then confronts Fang Gao in the tunnels and shoots him. The tunnel suddenly fills with steam, and by the time it clears, Fang Gao's men have carried their master's body away. Barry and Legrand return to headquarters, where they learn that the inspector's daughter, Jean, has been kidnapped. 
Legrand is forced to carry out Fangao's instructions to ensure the return of his daughter. The inspector brings famed surgeon Dr. Bonfils to Fangao's hideout because the bullet which struck the criminal has hit his spine and paralyzed him. While Bonfils performs surgery, Barry disguises himself as a Chinese man and infiltrates Fangao's hideout, located under a cemetery. Barry manages to rescue Legrand, but Fangao escapes with Bonfils and Jean still his prisoner. Barry questions a, a captured guard, Ling Fu, who tells that his master went to Cairo. Barry commandeers a plane which he takes over the Mediterranean in pursuit. Legrand joins the French Navy aboard a gunship and follows. Barry's plane is shot down above the water by pilots loyal to Fangao. He crashes in the water and then waits for Legrand to pick him up. Barry finally reaches Port Said, where he meets with an informant and former associate. He finds that Fangao's new hideout is located somewhere in the city and reaches the roof of that hideout. From his vantage point, he sees men threatening Jean. He shoots one of them, which leads to a chase and eventually to his capture. However, Ling Fu has returned and helps Barry escape from the dungeons of Fangao's hideout. Barry then successfully rescues Jean and returns her to her father. However, Dr. Bonfils is still a captive. Fangao is still unable to walk after his surgery and he demands that the doctor perform another operation. The pacing of this story is very fast, but if Fangao needs a second surgery here, clearly some time has passed since his first operation, since I would think that he would need to heal from that operation before determining that, oh, I still can't walk. Anyway, this brings us to the end of More Fun Comics number 29. That issue, cover dated February 1938, was the last issue of More Fun to feature Barry O'Neill. A few months later, Barry would return this time in the pages of New Adventure Comics number 31, cover dated October 1938. New Adventure had become Adventure Comics with the very next issue, number 32. Barry was the lead strip in that title until the debut of The Sandman in Adventure Comics number 40, who kicked Barry back into the middle of the book somewhere. Although Barry's strip didn't appear in number 33, he was otherwise in, a, in Adventure Comics until... Adventure number 60, which was in 1941, and was the end of Barry O'Neill's strip. With the move to Adventure Comics, Barry's strip expanded from two pages to six. So the expanded page count may have been the reason for the eight-month gap in publication between the time of More Fun number 29 and New Adventure number 31. The extra time could have been needed for artist Leo O'Melia to produce enough pages to fill the allotted space. Another possible reason for the delay was that the reprints of Omelia's Dr. Manfu uh, strips from the 20s began to appear in Detective Comics, beginning with number 17, dated July 1938. Given that Barry O'Neill was more or less a Fu Manchu ripoff, it's possible that DC pulled the publication of the knockoff to secure the rights to do the reprints of the Fu Manchu strip. However, when Barry did return, both strips were published simultaneously for several months, so that's not necessarily really likely. The real reason for the change and for the delay was that uh, More Fun number 29 was the final issue edited by DC founder Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. During this time period, his financial backers and partners, Harry Donenfield and Jack Leibowitz, 
uh, were forcing the major out of his own company. Vincent Sullivan took over as the new editor and shuffled the lineups of, uh, of both more fun and adventure comics. A few months later, of course, Superman would burst onto the scene and DC's success was assured. But at this time period, there was no uh, financial success for this company, which is part of the disagreement. And I've heard m multiple versions of the story of how uh, Wheeler-Nicholson was kicked out, some favorable, some less so. In any case, various adventures in New Adventure and Adventure Comics picked up directly from where it left off in Morphon number 29. Barry returns to Fangao's hideout and locates Dr. Bonfils. With some help from Ling Fu, his associate, they escape. Meanwhile, Fangao has sent forces to once again kidnap Jean Legrand and her father. When Inspector Legrand refuses to provide access to a supply of poison gas, Fangao uses a new drug on the inspector, which completely robs him of his will. Jean is then sold into slavery to an Arab. Barry tries to help his friends, but Legrand, under Fangao's control, of course, attacks him. Ling Fu gives Barry a supply of the drug to take for analysis. Uh, so Barry takes this back to Dr. Bonfils, who develops an antidote which Barry uses to restore Legrand's mind. I find this to be a little bit strange since Bonfields is supposedly known for his famed surgery skills. He isn't a chemist, but I guess in comics if you're a doctor, you can be an expert in all medical fields. This is hardly the worst leap in logic I've ever seen, but I'm just saying, you know, it seems likely that you'd want a chemist to do that, not a surgeon. In any case, after Barry uses the antidote on Legrand, he is once again captured by Fangao. As usual, the villain elects not to kill the captured hero. Instead, he uses water torture on Barry. The recovered Legrand leads, then leads a team of French sailors to Barry's rescue. Fangao is shot during the battle, but his body is not recovered. Ah, the cliches continue. Jean has escaped from slavery with the help of a fellow slave and a traveling merchant. She and, his she and her father are finally reunited. Then everyone returns to Paris. Fangao still alive, obviously, and then he has a team of surgeons saving his life from his uh, wounds that he received during the battle. So that's it for Barry's first adventure. 35 parts, beginning in January 1935 and ending in Adventure Comics number 37, published in March of 39. So it ran for more than four years. Most of this series, which featured outstanding illustration from Leo Emilia, but the final two installments of the series were actually drawn by artist Ed Winiarski, uh, who would go on to continue on the strip until it ceased publication with Adventure number 60. I might be covering some of the later adventures in another episode of this podcast. So Barry's adventures were pretty much what I'd expect from an action serial of the day. Lots of cliffhangers and very fast-paced this was actually a lot of fun, this strip. Sure, I'd like to know more about Barry, what his background is, what his motivations are, some more characterization, that sort of thing. But for the purpose of this story, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's just a lot of fun and very fast-paced. It's also comforting to know somehow that uh, many of the cliches that are constantly repeated in modern material were even cliches back in 1935 when this story appeared. Fangao kept capturing Barry, but instead of killing him, he'd let him live and, of course, escape. Then he'd scream and yell at his henchmen when, they, when the hero escapes. This could basically be a James Bond adventure uh, in, in some respects. 
I do think this adventure did go on a little bit too long. It probably could have ended at the point where they left Paris. I do see why this feature lasted longer than any of the other ones from New Fun. It is probably the best of the bunch. I don't know enough about Dr. Fu Manchu to see how it compares with the rest of that series, with, with, excuse me, that series. It was inspired by it, but the story itself may be completely different. And Omelia's artwork, uh, as I have said a couple times, was really good. I think it's really the selling point of this series. One thing that's kind of interesting to note here is that in the conclusion of this story, it's Legrand and the French sailors who actually save the day. Barry really doesn't do much at the end. He's prisoner, and they come and rescue him. So the actual hero of the story in the conclusion doesn't really get to be the hero. So reprints of Barry O'Neill's stories aren't readily available. The adventures from New Fun number 3 and 4 were reprinted, but they were done so in the ultra-rare Big Book of Fun comics from 1935. Additionally, in late 1945, some Barry O'Neill stories did show up in a couple of really odd places. The first was Atomic Comics number 1, published by Green Publishing. This book had reprints of Siegel and Schuster's Radio Squad, also from More Fun. Plus it had King Arthur and Captain Quick reprints from More Fun's sister publication, New Comics. Most interesting of all is that the Barry O'Neill story contained therein is the story from New Fun number 1 through 4, but the artwork is all new. I'll post some side-by-side -side comparisons in the show notes to kind of illustrate the differences, uh, but it's kind of interesting that they were completely redrawn. I'm not sure who the artist was that did the new artwork. I've seen one person claim that it was uh, Leo or Amelia. I'm not really convinced of that. I think the styles are different. Um, the plane in part four doesn't look all that good, and drawing planes was one of Amelia's real strengths as an artist. The original version of part four was drawn by Amelia, and even that part was completely redrawn, which leads me to believe it wasn't him that did this uh, uh, rework of the artwork. Maybe it was done years later, which would account for the style differences, but as I said, I remain unconvinced that he was the artist on it. So I don't know who the real artist was. Atomic uh, Comics lasted for four issues, but the next three didn't contain any work previously published by DC. They did contain some prop powers features. That was a feature that was published by Quality Comics, and they had some other material in there as well. So another of the oddball reprints featured Barry O'Neill was Cavalier Comics, published in 1945 by A.W. Nugent. This issue was numbered number two, but as far as I know, it was the only issue of the series. Um, I believe it was reprinted again in 1952, but uh, this was the, the exact same book. But, so this 1945 reprint was by Nugent, who was best known uh, for puzzles that appeared in comics and newspapers, including some DC comics. He also drew a story for the 1944 Big All-American comic book, which I'll be covering at some point. Uh, I don't actually have a copy of the Cavalier comics issue, but the contents listing for it includes the Barry O'Neill stories from New Fun 5 and 6, and more fun 7 through 10. The artwork in these was updated just like Atomic Comics, or it might have been anyway. I can't really confirm this. I, I'm just going by some brief notes that uh, I found online. So those pages may have been redrawn just like uh, the ones in Atomic Comics were.
So Cavalier also contains more Captain Quick reprints and a Speed Saunders story from Detective Comics. The Barry O'Neill and Captain Quick stories pick up directly from where the Atomic Comics ones left off. So I wonder if Cavalier Comics was labeled number two because it was actually a continuation from Atomic Comics number one. Uh, they were published by different publishers, but that doesn't mean they weren't related in some way. There's some circumstantial evidence there. I also mentioned last episode Bingo Comics, which was published by Howard Publishing. So some further research on that one include, uh, shows that it includes some Captain Jim reprints, which is a, which is a series from New Comics, and a, another Speed Saunders tale from Detective. And that's in addition, of course, to the Sonder of the Secret Service reprints that I mentioned last episode. So my suspicion is that all three of these books were related in some way. Uh, they were all published in late 1945, but the full story behind their publication is still kind of an unknown for me. I've got the Atomic Comics issue, and now I'm actually interested in picking up both the, the Bingo and the Cavalier comics uh, to check them out. If anyone knows where I can find a cheap copy of either of those, uh, let me know. I don't want to pay a lot for it, but I'd certainly love, love to check those issues out. You've got mail. All right. I've got a couple of email responses based on my first couple of episodes. Yeah, feedback. All right, let's dive right in. First email comes from Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Mike, just listened to your first episode, and I have to say I was really intrigued by the setup and premise of your show. First off, the origins of your collection, which I don't mind telling you or is absolutely insane, was a lot of fun to hear. Yeah, Luke, it is kind of insane, but uh, the good kind, I hope. Anyway, when using your site as reference, I often wondered about the kind of person who would undertake such a task. So the insight was nice to hear. Your description of New Fun Comics number 1 was really enjoyable as well. I've read a decent number of Golden Age comics due to my love of Hawkman, but nothing quite as early as this one. The prevalence of one-page features, which were serialized to me, speaks of the state of comic strips at the time. Daily adventure or soap opera strips were very popular in newspapers at the time, such as the work of Lyman Young, Lee Falk, Alex Raymond, Chester Gould, and later folks like Stan Drake and Al Williamson. So it makes sense that some sort of approach to... So it makes sense to take the same sort of approach uh, with a comic book. It also jives with the idea of making a book weekly, Waiting a week to get a new page of a serial strip is akin to waiting for the Sunday paper to get the Sunday strip each week. Luke, I agree with you. These comics were structured very much like the Sunday strips. I think I mentioned I've never been a fan uh, of that kind of reading experience, though. I like to sit down and read a complete story all at once. Uh, given the length of some of these serials, like Barry O'Neill's 35 chapters, waiting four years for a complete story kind of outrageous to me. Luke continues, uh, Jack Wood sounds like a lot of golden and very early Silver Age cowboys. Yeah, Luke, uh, it's pretty typical cowboy adventure. I've recently been reading a lot of Trigger Twins and Johnny Thunder strips. Uh, the Western, not the JSA dope. This one is Jack Wood's being pretty com comparable to those two. Uh, the difference being that the Silver Age Westerns were more episodic in nature. They usually had a premise that just got repeated with each issue, and the stories seemed to be more about illustrating that premise or the hook of the strip. Uh, for example, the Trigger Twins, it was always about one twin replacing the other without anyone catching on. 
Johnny Thunder strips were generally about protecting his secret identity, kind of like a Superman of the West. Back to Luke's comments. Luckily, I like Westerns, so that's just dandy with me. I'm glad you like them, Luke. Uh, of course, this one was a little bit silly. Anytime Pancho Villa shows up in a comic strip, uh, you get a little silly. The ink work is really interesting on the strips you posted. It's like Anderson is using an anti-photorealism style with heavy single-line technique used. Looking forward to more, and keep up the good work. Luke. Thanks, Luke. I really appreciate the comments. I'm hoping to keep this show interesting for everyone, even if there's not going to be superheroes in it for quite a while. Someday I may get to them. And, you know, check your calendars at about 21.13. It's probably going to take me that long to get to the superhero stuff. Yeah, I hope not. I, I actually have a schedule for when I'm probably going to be getting to that stuff, so hang in there. So my next letter comes from Billy Hogan. Hi, Mike. I've listened to the first two episodes of your podcast on the True True Freaks website through iTunes. Yes, I want to give a shout-out to the guys on Two True Freaks for agreeing to host my show. I've been listening to several of their, sh their shows for years. They seem to have a hundred different ones dealing with all cross-sections of uh, nerddom. I've been running their website for the last couple months, and it just seemed natural for me to distribute my show through their site. Hopefully their listeners will uh, circle back to my website and I can steer listeners to their shows from my site. If you're into classic material like I am, definitely sh check out the shows Back to the Bins. I guarantee you'll like that one. And those, those guys are veterans uh, with the podcasting gig far more than me. I'm likely to be working out the kinks for a bit uh, with my own show uh, since I'm relatively new to being on this side of the podcast. So back to uh, Billy's letter. As someone who enjoys learning about comic book history, I've enjoyed these first two episodes very much, especially your approach to concentrating on only one strip and summarizing its history. I will be eagerly anticipating future episodes about the very beginnings of what we know today as DC Comics. Billy Hogan. Thanks very much, Billy. I really do hope I can be informative to listeners. I know that these comics and characters that I'll be covering... Uh, especially in the early episodes, are not everyone's cup of tea. This is a fairly small niche that I'm carving for myself here. Uh, but my hope is that I can make whatever I am covering as interesting as possible to the general listeners. Uh, please continue to let me know how I'm doing in that regard. And I want to also give a shout-out to both uh, Billy and Luke. Both of them run podcasts themselves. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, look for those. I'll see if I can get the addresses in the show notes if I remember correctly. I think that's it for this time. Please don't forget to visit my website, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, at www.mikesamazingworld.com. Please send any feedback about this show to mike at dcindexes.com. You can subscribe to this show either through the Two True Freaks website or on iTunes. Just search for Mike's Amazing World. And while you're there, you should go check out some of the other great True True Freak shows. You can also leave a review, which will help other listeners find my show. I uh, hope you join me next time as I continue to explore Mike's amazing world of DC history.